Hey everybody, welcome to Hacking Into Security, your career-related cybersecurity show. I'm your host, Ricky Burke, the InfoSec recruiter, and regularly we'll be catching up with a variety of guests from CISOs, entrepreneurs, VCs, new people into the industry, and more, each sharing their story, industry knowledge, and advice on how others can navigate success in their career. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, welcome to another episode of Hacking Into Security. Today, we're joined by Craig Templeton. Craig is the CISO and GM Technology Platforms at REA Group. Craig, welcome, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Ricky. Thanks for having me. Craig, so you've got, let's just say, a busy role being a CISO and now covering more than more than security with other IT roles as well. So I guess, how are you managing that and how, how long has that been going for you so far? Yeah, so I took on an expanded role probably about 12 months ago, and that's recently expanded a little bit more. So I also look after what's called uh, security platforms, architecture, and cloud engineering. So if you take the first letters of each of those things, that spells space. So I am the space commander, as I say. Uh, so yeah, we look after all of the uh, cybersecurity for REA Group, plus all of the AWS cloud engineering and the platform development as well. So it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a big and expanding team, and it's it's really exciting actually to to bring together a bunch of really clever engineers and a security team together, you know, as one group, and gives us a very powerful lever within the organization to get things done at scale. So you're going to be a busy person then. Yeah, let's just say lockdown's been interesting. <laughs> you know, um, and, and, you know, I'd say that look, the team's been super productive. In fact, arguably more productive, but but it certainly is coming at a bit of a cost for us in terms of some burnouts, in terms of mental cycles, and so on. So I think there's a bit of a lesson as this sort of starts to stretch out a little bit uh, into the year, the medium term in terms of how we look after our, our health and well-being as, as a team. So um, it's definitely something that's uh, it's, it's on my mind as a as a leader of that group. I think being aware of that is a good start in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And we do some, some regular check-ins uh, in terms of health and well-being with the team. And we, we track uh, sentiment, physical and mental health as well, um, quite closely. Uh, so you can sort of see the snake as it ebbs and flows over the week. Uh, but yeah, I'd say that the always being on is is has been turbocharged in the, the last three to four months. I wouldn't say I'm exactly setting a good <laughs> a good example myself um, <laughs> in terms terms of the the hours that I work. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely something that we've got to keep in check. What sort of hours out of interest? I don't know if I'm a really good example. I'd say 50 to 60 hours for me personally wouldn't be uncommon. You know, that's probably a function of me just being at home and not switching off. It's just too easy. So I wouldn't say that that was, I'm not saying it's healthy and I'm not saying it's sustainable, but certainly when I, when you're locked down, there's only so much Netflix you can, you can watch. <laughs> now the kids have gone back to school. It's, it's all too easy to slip slip into you know just uh well just i'll flip open slack here and answer a few messages type thing when i'm you know sitting on the couch yeah it's a bit, bit easier to work now the kids are back it's a little bit yeah definitely the noise levels have gone down i don't think i'll be able to do this podcast so easily with them them yelling at Fortnite on the tv <laughs> yeah my, my, my productivity stepped up i think three or four weeks ago coincidentally yeah so you're obviously yeah you've got a busy role to say the least. You're a CISO of a public listed company in Australia, a very well known brand. The topic of today is about I guess CISOs trying to get into the mindset of a CISO and and also help 
also aspiring people that want to move into that, that sort of position, I guess, over the coming years. Obviously, you've not always been in that role. So I guess, how did you get started in security and, and what did your journey look like? Yeah, good question. The journey for me into where I, where I got today is part design, part accident. I actually did a bit of a thought experiment only last week where I after having a conversation with my team around career opportunities, I decided to write down all the jobs I've actually been paid money to do. And it came to 17. 40% of those roles happened as either an accident or as a result of a reorg. And I've actually had quite a diverse number of things that have been paid money to do. I mean, I've been a musician. So yeah, musician, wedding photographer, I've been a business analyst, a project manager, various different consulting roles. So the, the, the roles that I've had across the last 30 years have really been as broad as they have deep. So I would say I'm probably an example of what I would characterize an opportunistic generalist. So I'm not afraid to take opportunities when they come along. And sometimes I'm not quite sure where they might lead. And the generalist's part of it really comes into where you're very adaptable. And I think that's really stood me in pretty good stead. So there's absolutely a case and a need for specialists in, in certain disciplines and, and you need specialities. But I feel that for me personally, being a very good generalist has has really helped me navigate some some personal uncertainty, some uncertainty in the job market as well. But whenever it comes to my current role and being able to have good perspective and to discuss like what really matters in terms of risks to a business, having a great deal of breadth helps you have that rounded uh, conversations. Because sometimes I find that when you talk to the specialists, they will be absolutely atomically correct, but also could be wrong for the business as well. So, you know, you, you, you can go down a rabbit hole and get like super, super deep on something. The reality is that you may not need to get to that level of depth to have a meaningful conversation with some of your stakeholders. So I, I really feel that for me personally, and where I am, I'm grateful to have had some of those opportunities. Some of them have come as a surprise and come out of the blue. Some of them I haven't been expecting. Some of them have thought, I don't even know where this is going, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to see where it goes. And I, I can actually point to one pivotal moment actually where I took a maternity backfill for nine months as chief of staff at a, at a large bank that may be colored blue. And that was kind of like a, a bit of an adventure. and was kind of a bit of a risk to me and to, to, to my boss at the time. We we're kind of like going, look, this opportunity's come up. What do you think? And I'm going, yeah, you know, we'll give it a crack. I would actually say that if I hadn't have done that role, which actually became in the end a permanent role and, I don't think that I would have been able to land the role that I currently have without having done that. And that was a complete accident. Wow. Because what I was able to do was I was able to demonstrate a different set of skills that I think were critical to what I do now in terms of managing budgets, managing headcount, and all of the things that come into running a good business office. And also being able to develop materials to get presented at um, executive and board meetings as part of being a chief of staff. I actually find that to be critical in terms of enabling me to get to this role that I currently am. And I, I really do feel that, you know, reflecting back, if I hadn't have had that opportunity and actually taken it, I, I think 
it probably would have been a slightly different journey to get to where I am today. And I may still be on that journey um, instead of the next chapter uh, that I currently find myself on. That's really interesting. So I, I can see what you mean about, yeah, I guess uh, where you are today and then how you got there. So it's, it's not always by design, but obviously skill sets you've picked up along the way have, have helped build that out for you. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say that, you know, I stumbled into this by accident. I absolutely did not stumble into this. You know, I had a target <laughs> in mind and I, and I did, you know, delib- deliberately chase it. Yeah. I suppose the, the way I would think about this is when you're playing a game of chess, you know the final move is checkmate, mm. but you don't know all the intermediate moves that's going to get you into that position of checkmate. You may be able to see the first, you know, the next two or three moves. Like if you're a chess grandmaster, maybe you can see the next twenty moves, but you don't you don't know all of the different steps that you're going to take. But you kind of have a very clear idea about what your goal is. So I would say that you don't need to know all the steps on the journey to have a goal in mind. And you should be prepared to take steps and to leverage opportunities as they arise and not be afraid to take lateral moves in order to achieve a step forward. And I think that my view is that a lot of people feel that unless they're continually going up, they're not either getting good career outcomes or they're not leveraging opportunities. But I would say to the contrary, your route up is absolutely limited by the number of senior roles in an organization. Your route horizontally is con- is literally unlimited because you, there is an unlimited number of horizontal moves that you can do, but there are only so many roles in an organization and only so many levels of seniority that you can possibly achieve. So, you know, my view is that's what career opportunity is, is how many options are presented to you that you can you can leverage yourself across a horizontal viewpoint. It's a really good, really good point. I, th- I think too often people do look straight up as opposed to looking across and see how they can broaden their skill sets and get a deeper understanding of businesses and how they operate as well. Yeah, absolutely. And perspective, especially if you're a CISO in an organization, is critical. If you are only coming from a perspective of coming out of, say, security operations or network operations, something like this, you're going to have a very particular viewpoint. If you've had a a number of different experiences in a number of different business areas and even a number of different industries, you're going to bring color to that. So absolutely, you need to have a very clear view around some of the risk challenges that the business may face. But you also have to be very pragmatic about that as well. And, And I really have found Again, I can't comment for everyone and everybody goes on the journey differently and everybody has a diverse range of backgrounds. But for me personally, I find that having exposure to a lot of those opportunities has really helped me. Okay, great. So you you achieved your goal to be a CSO. And I guess for others that are not in that role, there's always maybe perceptions of what jobs entail if they haven't actually worked in the position yet. So to give some insight, if you don't mind, I guess, what, what does an average day, average week look like for you in your sort of position? Well, again, I'm not really, a, I'm not in a typical position here because I've got quite a broad remit now in addition to security. What I would say is that I, like CISO roles are, each one is different, even though they're the same title. And the scope and the remit of CISO's is quite variable. So some CISOs may have operations under their remit. Some may have architecture. Some may have risk management. Some may have controls assurance. So I'd say that 
like no two Caesar roles are the same. For me personally, there is a lot of stakeholder management involved. I wouldn't say that I'm spending like all my time in PowerPoint. I certainly spend a lot less time of my time in PowerPoint working for a REA group than I have for other organizations. But the truth is a major part of Light Lady security team is being able to communicate your ideas, not just upwards, but with a range of different stakeholders, including other technical teams. So one of the things that you would need to have is a variability and in terms of your communication style. So for some people, you're providing a lot of data to them. For another set of people, you're presenting a picture, but you may be talking about the same problem. So I think it's really having some adaptability in terms of how you change, how you're going to communicate to different stakeholder groups within the organization. Because by and large, what I find is that once you've established a mandate and good solid support from the board and the exec, to be honest with you, that job is largely reporting progress. I think really where the rubber hits the road in an organization is what I call the sticky upper middle layer. So that's your sort of upper middle manage, upper middle to senior management, the people who are actually executing the strategy of the organization. That's your key stakeholder group. And you can have all the support from the board and the, uh, and the exec that you, that you like. But effectively, if you can't bring some of your peers along with you on the journey and some of their teams, who frankly aren't incentivized and KPI'd on security outcomes, then you're going to have an upward struggle. So I'd say that that's a key stakeholder group. And, and I guess from experience, how have you gone about, I guess, maybe building relationships and, and working with those people? Yeah, good question. I'd say it's a, it's a continuing journey. You, you have a lot of uh, different communication styles that you have to negotiate. Getting an invitation or even inviting yourself to leadership team meetings on occasion helps. Being baked into project delivery as well helps a lot to get visibility um, and having some very clear boundaries about how to how and when you should be engaged I'd, I'd certainly be i'd certainly caution on playing the fear card too too often it, like it has its place but i'd say that's it's a rarity I and mean, really my view is that you should be building ongoing engagement with those stakeholders and, and not waiting for things to blow up yeah, so quite quite a late time in the day to then stop building relationships to that situation. Look, sometimes inevitably a fire will bring attention to something. It, it it's preferable to to avoid that. I think the other thing is you need to have a great degree of empathy with the fact that other people in the organization don't have the same priorities as you. You know, frankly, most people in the business aren't jumping out of bed in the morning to do security. That's not their job, and it's not how they get rewarded, and it's not how, it's not what they're incentivized to do. So, whenever you come knocking at the door, it's not exactly that you're going to be welcomed with open arms. I'm not saying they're going to go, "Oh my God, here comes a security guy," but at the same time, they have other priorities and they have other things that they need to do. So, any anybody or anything that is potentially going to be a blocker for that needs to be treated with with respect. Makes a lot of sense. So again, I guess relationships are key to actually getting things done. Hundred percent. Okay. And going into the role, I guess what were the maybe surprising challenges that you faced that you maybe weren't expecting, or big learning curves for you? I think actually a surprising challenge for me was even people in really technical roles. You think 
potentially have got more exposure to some security challenges actually have in some cases very little awareness of, of what those might be so you may think that you have natural allies in engineering teams and absolutely you know those guys are amazing at what they do and they have a lot of skills and experience and you know if you put them on the spot they'll know exactly what to do but they're also incentivized to do other things like ship code and build features and develop products and stuff. So for as much as you think you have a big, healthy cohort of allies, sometimes it doesn't always quite work out like that. <laughs> the other thing is the surprise is just really about how dynamic your business is. And that's why I said that every Caesar role is different. The scope and the remit is different. The business models are different. Risks that show up for me at REA Group aren't going to be the same risks that show up for somebody in a different digital business, even though we're both digital businesses. Like we'll share a lot of common risks, but there's probably degrees of as well. So it's really good to talk with your peers in the industry to see how they're cha- they're tackling certain challenges. But it's not until you like do a deep dive into really the nuts and bolts of, of what they're facing. And even though you think you're dealing with the same problem, when you when you look at the stakeholder group, you look at the diversity of like what their business models are, it's com- it can be completely different. And your approach and your strategy that can be completely different as well, as well your your engagement strategy as well. So yeah, that's I wouldn't say it was a surprising challenge. I think it's just a challenge that you face as a CISO, and certainly if you've worked in security for other companies and then you come into this role, I would say the best thing you can do is have a completely open mind. You can certainly have a very clear idea about what you think it might look like, but you should be open to changing your position on certain things and also open to the fact that some of the things that you may have, some assumptions that you may have made on the way in may not actually turn out to be true. (laughs) Yeah. Time for a quick break. I'm Ricky Burke. In my full-time role, I'm the founder and director of CyberSec People, a leading cybersecurity recruitment company, where we support organizations across the US and APAC in hiring cybersecurity talent. Through our connections and reach into the security community, our deep industry knowledge, we save organizations time when hiring. We have a 98% success rate and a three-year track record that demonstrates we only have to send, on average, two applicants to find success. If your organization is hiring, reach out as we'd love to discuss what that means for you. In the meantime, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Yeah, the the reality can sometimes be quite different. Everyone's a critic on the armchair. You know, you're you're watching the footy match and you're like, oh, that's a terrible move. I totally wouldn't have done that if I I was in that position. I'm like, oh, you reckon? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I tell you what, when you're in the position, it's a completely different ball game. Yeah. So I would I would say that a high degree of humility with a healthy dose of reality goes a long way. Like I said, being very pragmatic and open minded, and wanting to learn, and re- recognizing what your 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 limitations are. Because frankly, nobody has got all the answers. Nobody's nailing this. You need to really challenge yourself on some of the things, some of your assumptions that you have and, and seek counsel as well from other people in, in, in the organization and the business. I said, you're not going to get, you're not always going to get it right. You know, that's just a, that's just a fact of life. Okay. Now you're in a position where obviously you're now managing a team and, and 
hiring people or hire people. So I guess there's a, there's a lot of experience around that. What are the types of maybe skills or characteristics that you look for when hiring people? So one of the things that I look for is someone who's going to bring something to the team. Some quite often I'm I'm hiring to fill a, gap, a capability gap or replacing someone that I've lost. I, I really love it whenever somebody understands and recognizes their own limitations, someone who wants to learn and someone who can learn from their mistakes. The biggest challenge in security is you're not always going to get it right. You need to be able to learn from mistakes and you need to be able to operate in a way. Uh, at REA Group, we operate a, a what we call a blameless post-incident response review PIR and you know we we operate it in a blameless way so that we encourage people to put things on the table that actually happen so that we can understand and learn from it uh, and the reason that we position it as a blameless PIR is because we need people to you know, describe you know what they were feeling at the time talk about the issues that they find so that we can learn from them not make the mistakes in the future the worst candidate for me is someone is what we call the brilliant jerk. You know, Atlassian are on the record for talking around this. You know, the know-it-alls, the technical geniuses that are that, that can be they can be completely right and, and completely wrong at the same time. Nobody knows all the answers. The risks that we face are not the same as other companies. Having an open mind is really important. Yes, you want technical excellence and, and, and you want brilliance, but you also want a healthy dose of pragmatism and humility in there as well, and also empathy for the fact that not everybody will be in the same position that you are, knowing the things that you do. So we really need to bring to the table a lot of a lot of color. So when I'm looking for candidates, I, I am looking for someone who's who certainly is, has got some good self-awareness about what some of those limitations are and wants to grow and develop. Excellent. And you mentioned about turnoffs, so the brilliant jerk. If I'm honest, I can't imagine many companies actually wanting to hire that sort of person, but they are out there. When it comes to guest interviewing, and sometimes people will get asked things, maybe they don't know 100% or they'll just guess the answer. I guess, what's your preference in how someone should deal with that sort of response? Look, I don't think... You can usually tell when someone's blagging, so I would I would recommend that somebody just says, I don't know, but here's how I would go about quantifying the problem. So what I'm looking for is someone who can actually deal with the unknown, um, deal with things that they do know and things that they don't know, and then use that to either make educated decisions or to unpack some of the things that maybe they're not quite clear on or to ask clarifying questions. It's it's okay to say that you don't know or that, that you're not sure, or you can say that well, well, here's the things that I do know, and here's the things that I don't know, and then based on the things that I do know, I can deduce X, Y, and Z. We're not expecting everybody to have all the answers. What we're expecting is for someone to demonstrate that they can solve problems in a methodical way, use previous leverage previous experience, ask the right questions to try and get more information so that they can get a better outcome the next time around and not be afraid to to get it wrong. But I think that that's also linked partly to the culture of the organization. So I think that in a lot of cases for some, for many organizations, there is a fear of failure and there is a fear of getting it wrong. And I think that's a cultural problem. It's certainly something that we strive to 
to not show up at RA group that we want people to have what we call a real conversation at REA. And that's one of our company values. But I do see a lot of organizations where, you know, sort of everybody is expected to be expert. Everybody is expected to have all the, all the answers. It's, it's really around couching those uncertainties in, in some, some realities. And especially in security, sometimes it's you're operating in the gray. I really want people that can operate in, in uncertainty. Some people really struggle with operating with uncertainty. And, and I think that that's certainly one of the questions that I always try and bring up in interviews is how people cope maybe with not having all the facts. Because frankly, you're not always going to have all the facts. So how do you negotiate that? I, I can't have people crumble uh, under pressure when the, when there's when, when there's uncertainty i'm pleased you said that because i think people do have that fear of failure and i think if they have potentially permission to, or they know it's okay to just be honest and say i don't know and but that shows that sort of awareness and ability that they are alert you know a self-learner or hungry to find the answer then that problem solving ability i think is a skill in itself because the reality is people can't know everything and the technologies we're using these days, they're going to keep changing very quickly anyway. Yeah. And certainly for some of the more technical roles at RA group, we put people through a technical assessment. They have a, 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 pro, a technical problem to, to solve. We're not expecting that people will necessarily get to the finish or be able to uncover all of the things in the problem. What we're really looking for is for people to demonstrate how they go about solving problems, the clarifying questions that they ask. Are they on the right track? You know, with help, could they get to the end? So like, we're not expecting an A, an A plus. In fact, we're expecting for people not to get to the end of the problem. They probably won't have time to get to the end of the problem anyway within the technical assessment so uh, and it's peer reviewed as well so there's discussions that has had and i'm talking about engineering more generally not necessarily in security but where somebody is going to be put into a technical role for us yeah we have to have some demonstrated competency so we can kind of assess like where where do we think this person is in terms of a competency level talking of competency or assessing competencies i guess it's not a trick question but what are your thoughts around certifications and are they things that you look for? The thorny question about certifications. <laughs> yeah. Look, I certifications have their place. Kind of blue hot and cold in this. May say something controversial here, but let's not pretend there aren't commercial interests in many certifications. You know, the reality is that a lot of these certification bodies aren't charities. It's in their interest to grow membership. It's in their interests for their certifications to be recognized and for companies to ask, which then drives their business model. Like, I get it. Certifications show a level of competency, which allows you to easily assess candidates against each other in a field where you've got a lot of candidates. So if you need to sift through a lot of, uh, of things, you can sort of set a bar at a particular level because at least you know, given this certification, there's a certain expectation that you have. but. I, you know, it needs to be backed up by some practical application. Otherwise, the value is limited. The reality is in the real world, in some cases, depending on the certification, you wouldn't do things that you but that you would need to answer an exam. And that's really hard if you're going back to do a certification like I did about five or six years ago. I thought, mm, 
I don't know why, but I felt like I wanted to do a certification. <laughs> so I thought, okay. oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do the CISM. But in the exam, I was writing down things that I blatantly knew I'd never do in reality. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to go, oh, I have to answer this. But I, but I understand that it, it has to be that way. Otherwise, you can't mark the exam. So I'd say they have their place. They're very good to show base level of competency. In certain cases, in certain industries, it's becoming more expected that you would have that, and I, and I understand that, but it doesn't take away from practical application. So it's the difference between, you know, you can be an academic or a practitioner. Well, you know, let's, let's take an example. Do you want to be flown on a plane where the pilot spent 300 hours in the simulator? Or where the pilots spent 300 hours actually flying planes in real world conditions. Because you can do all the simulators you want and they've got tremendous value. But it's not until you've actually flown the planes as well where you're actually going to experience some of those things that you know perhaps the curveballs that aren't going to happen in the simulator. It's, it's very difficult to, to substitute that. So I think there's a case for both. So yeah, certifications. I, I, I think actually, Ricky, I sent you a a link to where somebody made this mind map of all the different kinds of certifications you could possibly yes, have in security. <laughs> did, did your brain hurt? Yes. Because, uh, uh, because I, I looked at that and I went, well, how the hell is anybody supposed to figure out what to go for? <laughs> like what makes sense for them? It's so not helpful. It's really difficult for people. I, I, I really feel for anyone trying to get into the industry and they're trying to go, well, what, some of these are pretty expensive as yep. well. So it, it sort of depends on where do you want to show up. Like if you're going to go into security operations, then yeah, it makes sense to be looking at things like OSCP because they're really practical orientated and they have got some very strict criteria. And yeah, that's that that's definitely something that would be carrying a good stead. But there are some other certifications that are kind of like, yeah, okay. I know people who can boot camp this in five days. All it means is that you spent five days and 60 hours doing a thing. So said some of these things are, yeah, there's how you answer the exam and then what you do in the real world as well. And like there's, there's theory and reality. And I don't want to bag out certifications because I, I actually do see that there is some value in certain contexts. So I'm not going to say don't do it. I think I would say, what career path do you feel that you are pursuing and to what degree is this genuinely going to help you? So I get the question a lot from people, what certification can I do to help me get a job? And in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I don't think there is one. It's the experience or the ability to learn something, but not learning for the sake of it. But there's, yeah, not one standard. I've never, I've never hired a single person solely based off a qualification that they have ever. Oh, why would you? So it's, and I've, I've hired, I would say, an equal amount of people that have had certifications and not had certifications. <laughs> so take, <laughs> take that as a real world example. I can talk maybe a bit more openly. I think that just that there are a lot of, bullshit certifications out there a lot of companies pushing their own agenda you only have to google it and it gets really confusing for those people trying to break into the industry these 
websites pushing the top 10 certifications, all sorts of things. And it's often the companies themselves that are producing these things. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's well, misleading. That, 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 that's why I was saying about it. Let, let, let's not beat around the bush here. The reality is that these a lot of these companies aren't charities. They have a business mm. model. So it's in their interest for people to take their certifications and it's in their interest for businesses to ask for it as well. So if they can get recognized, it's, it's a pretty good business model. I'm not, I'm not knocking <laughs> it, but see it, see it for what it is. Understand the limitations. It's like choosing a university course as well. You know, there are certain university courses that you would say would probably lead to a job medicine and veterinary science and you know, some of those things. Absolutely. And there are some courses you're thinking, frankly, I don't know what job that would lead to, <laughs> but it still costs a lot of money. So fine. I think it's a free world. Choose, you know, there has to be a reason to do it and you need to weigh up what you're going to invest in. And, you know, invest, I'd just say invest wisely. Yeah. Okay, they, they can be helpful, but I just don't think they should be the, doing a certification just to get a job is i think the wrong reason if it's if you want to learn something then that's the that's the right motivation yeah and i say i i would i would still bring it back to a lot of the if there's some technical things that you need to do then certifications are really helpful if you were going to be getting pretty involved in aws engineering they've got a, a um, this isn't an advertisement for amazon web services by the way it's just an example because google and Everybody has Microsoft will have certifications around the product stack that they have as well. And if you're going to immerse yourself into that product stack, it absolutely makes sense for you to do some of the training and courses and certifications in that because it shows a level of competency at a technical level. Hundred percent, do it if that's your jam, and that's in it. And it you you can certainly demonstrate a, a level of competency there. And there are people, but I, I do see people that have frankly got a bag of Scrabble letters after their name. I'm like going, like, seriously? Oh, okay. <laughs> so moving on to maybe sort of slightly higher or maybe more experienced people, you know, let's say you're advising yourself from five, seven years ago and you're an aspiring CISO. What, what advice would you give in terms of maybe some of the skills or attributes people should be picking up to help them with that journey? So there's probably four key areas that I would say I would I would say to myself to to focus on. Firstly, communication. Secondly, negotiation. Thirdly, tenacity. And fourth is risk management as a practitioner, not an academic. So I can, I can sort of elaborate on that. So if we go back to communication, if you can't communicate your ideas and relate them to actual business risks that could materialize for your business, you're unlikely to be successful. And you need to be able to adapt your communication style depending on your audience. And we talked about that, that you may have, you may need to discuss an issue with both a technical team and senior management you've got to adapt your communication method to suit. You also need to realize that not all the problems need to be solved and not all the problems can be solved. You do need to have a clear strategy and be careful not to get sidetracked. Incidents are going to happen. That's just a fact of life. Mentally preparing your business for that is really important. 
and it's also very important for a Caesar to figure out quickly what's going to kill the business and what's an edge case. The biggest mistake that I see is people chasing the edge cases, which are on the on the boundaries of likelihood. Probably one of the most fundamental challenges for a CISO is to communicate the most plausible and likely issues to arise for a business and to focus energy on that. Otherwise, you're just going to go down rabbit holes. When it comes to negotiation, you know, despite Scott Morrison's recent public statement about cyber attacks, security don't get free passes. The CISO is still going to have to negotiate trade-offs with other business priorities. And the reality is security is an overhead. It's an insurance policy. Unless your business is security, nobody's jumping out of the bed in the morning to do security except the security team. That's just a fact. So you're trading off against revenue generating opportunities and all of the other things that make the business successful. I'm not trying to burst anybody's bubble, but security is not the primary focus of most businesses, even though it's a very important risk to be managed. Things that you think are a no-brainer, by and large, well, it may not even have registered in the brains of most people that you need to t- talk to. So I'd say you're going to have to leverage every Jedi mind trick in the book and your linguistic programming to supercharge your negotiation skills. Well, I mentioned tenacity. People are going to say a no to you a lot. So get used to it. Get used to regrouping and coming back again and again. Sometimes the business needs to go on a long journey with you and you need to identify how to help them go along that path. There's going to be bumps along the way. And if you don't have tenacity, you're not going to last very long. And then finally, I mentioned risk management as a practitioner, not an academic. Yeah. So you have to pick your battles. It doesn't matter how many books you read. It doesn't matter how many best practices, frameworks that you use. It doesn't matter how many compliance checklists exist. None of it replaces practical risk management you're unlikely to get sufficient funding or resources or time to resolve all the security problems. Therefore, you really need to focus on what matters, including letting some things persist while you chase down others. So the analogy I always like to use in this one is that of a health health and well-being program. So the key to health and well-being is visibility and awareness. Being aware of a condition doesn't mean you have to treat it, or if you do treat it, when you're going to do that. It's about choosing when and how to treat that condition. So you can have, many of us will will have existing conditions that we can live with. So a good risk practitioner will understand the problems that they have in their plate and be able to prioritize. And it may be that you have to let something sit, which may be not optimal, but you've got to chase down something else. That's perfectly okay, as long as you understand and recognize what that means. So really being a CISO me is, is about helping your business understand the trade-offs and the options that they have available to them as it relates to material risks so that they can make informed decisions. So it's like you've got a dollar, but you've got 99 problems, but you can only afford to fix 10. So the question is, what 10 problems are you going to prioritize and why? And that's that's a practitioner's view of risk management, not the academic view. Mm. I'd say that those those four things would be probably the, the bits of advice I would have given to myself five or six years ago. Craig, th- thank you so much for your time today. It's been real pleasure and really valuable insight in terms of what goes on in your world. Keep Well, try not to keep up the, the 50, 60 hour weeks, but um, yeah, in the meantime, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Ricky. All right, take care. Thanks for listening. And if you've got any questions, comments, please reach out to me. You'll find me online anywhere, CyberSec, Ricky, 
And if you would like to be involved in the future, maybe be a guest, and uh, then reach out as well. Thanks for your time. Have a great day.